Good afternoon. Welcome to our broadcast at the Walla Walla University Church. We are so glad that you are joining us again. Another week of COVID-19, another week of a new normal, and we're all trying to make it through. It's been wonderful being connected as much as we're able with our community online. We're so glad you've been able to join us for our small groups online for prayer meeting online. We're so glad you've been able to interact with us and you've been sending us your post where you've seen generosity at work. You have been sharing stories of how God has been alive in your life. We want to share at this moment um, a student who is not able to be here like many students around the country. Uh, they are at home and they are now trying to navigate having gone through a week of online school. And we want to hear from the student, um, Emily Ellis, how she has been navigating this new normal. Hello, Walla Walla University Church. Uh, my name is Emily Ellis, and I obviously am not in Walla Walla. I am over here in Auburn, Washington at my parents' house. The whole quarantine thing this really took me by shock. And to be honest, I kind of treated it as a joke at first when I first heard about it, I think in January. And then I think reality started to check in and classes moved online. And now we're all kind of dispersed. Yeah, no, this time, um, to be honest, has been really challenging for me. Um, it hasn't been easy, I think, especially being a senior and um, potentially not having a graduation or, and especially not being there during my favorite quarter on campus is really hard. A while ago, I was talking on the phone with Dr. Doug Tilstra and he said, he said, you know what, Emily, I really view this as this season of almost wilderness for you. And I remember he said that and I was like, what? No, no way. This is crazy. Because earlier this year, I had been studying and I was reading how before um, Jesus began his ministry, um, before the apostles went into um, spread the gospel to the entire world, they spent a certain period of time in the wilderness and just seeking God and praying and being intentional about that. And I remember thinking of like, you know what, God, this is my wilderness experience before I enter into pastoral ministry. And so I've been trying to view it through that lens, and that has been really encouraging to me. There's a song called Sea of Victory by Elevation Worship, and one of the lines in it says, um, you take what the enemy went, meant for evil, and you turn it for good. And that has been my prayer for this whole pandemic is that God would take what the enemy meant for evil. He would take what the enemy meant for disrupting our lives, for moments of isolation, for time, for tearing us apart from ch our church family, um, for financial crisis, for economy, whatever, is that God would take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good. And I think that we as Christians have an amazing opportunity to do that. We get to partner with God in turning this situation into good. Um, so I encourage you guys, you know, what are some things that the enemy meant for evil in your life that God is trying to turn around for good? Um, maybe it's this wilderness experience that um, you now have in your hands and how can how can God shape that to be something good? Um, I don't like this more than the next person. And, but I, I, 
I still believe that the God that created the world from something chaotic, how he made, how he turned chaos into order, um, how we can use that same creative power in our life today. Um, so that's my prayer for you. Um, I, happy Sabbath, because I know this will be shown on Sabbath. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your experience of how you have been navigating these times that we are in. We'd love to hear from you as well at home if you actually want to send us a small clip reflecting on how things have been going in your life. We would love to get it. At this moment, I want to invite you wherever you are, whether you're sitting on your sofa, whether you are actually just waking up and you're still in bed, or whether you are with with a few friends to join me as we pray and get into the word of God. Father in heaven, we are yours. We are not together, but we are in your presence. And we ask that this afternoon, your spirit will be in our hearts. We pray that you will enliven the words of the book that you gave to us, that you will shape us, that you will form us, that we would see Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen. Overnight, we all have become a nation of arithmophiles, obsessed with numbers. When we wake up, we turn on our phones, we go to our screens, and we start to check the daily numbers. Over one million COVID cases worldwide, 275,000 plus cases in the United States, over 7,000 confirmed cases and deaths in the U.S. May 4th, if you're in Washington, is a time when the governor had says we need to stay home and stay safe. 20 million college students who are no longer going to school physically, but are now at home. And the numbers continue. Yesterday, the Dow Jones finished 1.68% down, and the S&P another 1.5% down from an already precipitous drop in the last month. A $2 trillion government bailout, which has been given to companies and also to us. Eight million unemployment claims in the last two weeks alone. These are numbers that we look at on a daily basis. But we also have our own numbers, don't we? Because it's fine that the federal government or epidemiologists are spitting these figures out to us. But when we sit at home around the kitchen table, we have our own numbers that we think about. 14 days of emergency savings. 60 days of rent or foreclosure moratoriums that we desperately need. A five-day wait for a test result to find out if we are positive or negative. 63 days until a summer wedding, which may or may not happen. 10 days of homeschooling kids. 71 days until graduation, and we're not sure where or how 
that will look like. Maybe it'd be more accurate to say we have not become a nation of arithmophiles, number lovers, but we have in fact become a nation of arithmophobes, afraid of all of these numbers and what they represent in our life. We hate having to count, or worse, having no numbers at all so that we can know the progress of this moment that we're in. And we ask ourselves questions. I ask these questions, and maybe you ask the same questions as well. When is this going to end anyways? How long is this going to go on for? Why did it even begin? Why did God allow this to happen? Can't he cut it short? What are the numbers? And these are all good, necessary, difficult questions that we have to wrestle with and that we have to grapple with at this time. Perhaps you're watching today and you're like the person who sent a letter to us last week after having engaged with the church again. You haven't gone to church for a while. You haven't been connected with faith or spirituality. But over the last month, as things have been taken from you, as the rug has been pulled from underneath you, you are re-evaluating everything again. And today you find yourself sitting at home, watching this broadcast, even though you have not set foot in a church for years. And you're trying to figure out how to survive. Or perhaps you're watching this afternoon and you have been in church your entire life. You don't miss church unless you are sick and you've been holding on, but now there are cracks coming in your sanity, and you don't know how much long you can hold on. Friends, we're facing difficult and uncertain times. We are facing a difficult future. And in the life of the church, Easter approaches next week. And I think it is apt that we are in a time of the church calendar where we are entering what is called Holy Week. And before we get to Easter, there is also a Thursday and there is also a Good Friday that we have to navigate and we have to traverse. And so between the pastel colors of Easter lies the painful, dark, tenebrous Good Friday and the silent Great Sabbath. And all have lessons for us today. And so I think today it is appropriate for us to sit with the tenebrous, with the bleak present that many of us are facing. I think it is uh, unwise for us to hurry to the glory and to the triumph of Easter Sunday and to skip out on the darkness of Easter Friday. When we elide Friday and Saturday, we miss lessons that are necessary. And before you think that I am downplaying resurrection and I'm downplaying Sunday, know that this is not the case. In fact, Sunday without Friday misses Easter. There are other religious traditions who have resurrection stories. The ancient world, my friends, is awash with stories and religions like this where there is a resurrected God. James Frazier in the Golden Bough, which was an early 19th century survey of world mythologies, pointed to other cults who had resurrected gods. 
He speaks about the cult of Persephone, of Adonis, of Attis, of Osiris, of Dionysius as evidence that there are other gods who resurrect in other religious traditions. There are also resurrection stories that feature Odin in Norse mythology, Ganesha in Hinduism, and Quetzalcoatl in Mesoamerican culture. They all have gods that resurrect. But Christianity is the only religion where at the center of its focus is the suffering and dedicated God. And so Easter alone does not make Christianity unique. It is Good Friday, Easter Sunday, that fit together to give us a complete and unique picture that we have as Christians. And that is why this afternoon we are going to uh, take a moment to think about what it looks like to be a cruciform community, a community formed by the cross. It is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. To be a Christian is to be cruciform. It is to be cross-shaped community. And this morning, I want to spend just a few moments with you uh, looking at a verse which speaks about this cruciformity, and it's actually going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 5 through to 11. So if you don't have a Bible nearby, you can grab one. Uh, You can perhaps look at your phone and get to your Bible app and read with me. You can follow along Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. So this is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's a hymn that some people think Paul had taken uh, from an earlier place that had already been present. And here we find uh, in Philippians chapter 2, the cosmic consequences of Jesus Christ leaving heaven and coming to earth. And it describes cruciformity. Let's read it together. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being formed in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross." Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Often this passage is uh, read and then it's described as this downward spiral into humanity that Jesus Christ comes ending with his death on the cross for our sake. And so when you look at the direction of Philippians chapter 2, we normally couch it as just being this uh, downward spiral which comes down. As a result, we often see Jesus Christ in this moment as being derogated and coming down for humanity. And when he comes down, God raises him up and he reverses this downward abnegation and he sets him on high, giving him glory and honor. 
Here's the thing. When we read the text in this way, which I think is a good reading of the text, and it's a, a, a reading of the text which makes sense, we put emphasis on the sacrifice of Jesus in taking on our sin and our blame. We emphasize that Jesus Christ dies, he takes on our sin, and he takes on our shame. But what is often overlooked is that the downward spiral that Jesus Christ takes into humiliation, this divine abnegation, which then results in him going upwards and being glorified, is only secondary to the point Paul is trying to make. So follow me here. The point is this. When Jesus Christ goes down and he is humiliated, this is a secondary point to what Paul is trying to make. The primary point that he is trying to tell us is that, in fact, everything Jesus Christ did was revealing the nature and the cruciform character of God. After all, Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us that he came in the form of God. But when we read chapter 6, and depending on the translation you have, I have the New King James Version that I'm reading from this afternoon. You may have an insertion in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Pick up your Bible, see if yours has it. If you have the ESV, the NET, the NAS, or maybe the RSV, you may find that it adds the word though or although to the first part of verse 6. Okay, Andreas, you're going an awful, uh, you're going an awful uh, long on this verse. Why is it important? Let me tell you why it's important. It's important because when you render it in this way, it leads the believer to believe that the description of Christ coming down, being humiliated on the cross, and Christ's actions are contrary to the character and the nature of God. That although Jesus was God, he turned his back on his divinity, he gave it all up to come on earth just for us, that Jesus Christ did what he otherwise would never do for us. Like your friend, you know the one I'm talking about, the one who never drinks water. The one who only drinks things that have color in them. Who refuses, point blank, to drink water. And then one day, you are walking along and you see your friend with a big Nalgene water bottle filled to the brim, sipping water. And then you would look at your friend and you would say, what are you doing? This is contrary to your nature. Or if a teacher who dings you when you come into class 30 seconds late, one day when you come into class 15 minutes late, gives you a round of applause, not a sarcastic one, gives you a gift and welcomes you to learning. This would be your teacher going contrary to what they normally do. And when we read Philippians chapter 2, as Jesus Christ coming and suffering humiliation on the cross, almost as contrary to his nature, we miss something important. And we make verse 8 where Jesus goes to the cross as being the center of this hymn. Let me put another reading for you. Many teachers and Bible scholars have noted that we can read this text in a different way, and we can say that it's not that although Jesus was God, he came to earth to suffer and die, but since Jesus was God, 
He came to earth to suffer and to die. It was part of his loving nature, not against it. And so when we read it this way, the cross is not the ultimate humiliation of Jesus, but the cross becomes the ultimate manifestation of the divinity of God in Jesus. Let's go through that again. The cross is not the ultimate humiliation of Jesus, but the ultimate manifestation of the divinity of God in Jesus. And this, my friends, is cruciform theology, a cross-shaped theology, pinning the very center of our hope on a God who comes as part of his loving nature and who enters into our suffering to reveal God in the fullest, fullest spectrum. The cross is the ultimate expression of Jesus revealing himself as divine. The cross shows us who God truly is and that God is a God who will come down and make himself of no reputation, who will take the form of a slave, who will come in our likeness, who will humble himself completely and finally and ultimately suffering a cruel, torturous death on the cross. This is what God is truly like. This is who God truly is. On the cross, Jesus reveals a God who does not cause others to suffer and die, but who suffers and dies himself for the sake of others. And this is really the crux of our message this morning, that on the cross, Jesus reveals a God who does not cause others to suffer and die, but who suffers and dies himself for the sake of others. And why is this the center of what we are talking about when we think about Good Friday? Because my friends, we all are in the throes of suffering. To lesser or to greater extent, all of us are suffering. We are suffering disruption. We are suffering uncertainty. We're suffering anxiety. We're suffering looking at a future which is clouded. And God is not the author of it. He does not cause others to suffer and die. But God enters into our experiences and he suffers and dies himself for the sake of others. Swiss theologian Hans uh, von Balthasar writes that of the cross, he says, being disguised on the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. The cross is the final, full revelation of God. And Brian Zahn says it well when he says, the cross is both the awful crescendo of human sin and the sublime apex of divine grace. The cross. And as a community who follow Christ we are cruciform in that our lives also ought to be shaped by the cross. Now, all of this was a foundation for what I'm going to say. Because this is really what I've been feeling, and I think it's where all of us have been to greater or to lesser extents. And some of you may have not even heard the last seven minutes, because you have been thinking about the numbers. You're thinking 
about the $2 trillion bailout which is coming and you're hoping that perhaps the 1200 or the 2400 you get for your family will give you enough margin to make it until you are able to get back on your feet. You're still thinking about the 63 days until that event that you have been looking forward to in your life is potentially canceled. You're thinking about the numbers of people who have died, and that is where your mind has been. The suffering, the uncertainty, the pallidness. But we can only go there, my friends, as we acknowledge Friday and we acknowledge the cross. And we think about cruciformity amongst unpaid bills and exhausted systems. How do we exist in the pallid colors before Easter? How do we think about God's seeming silence in response to the cries of his children? How do we think about God's silence in response to spouses who are saying goodbye to loved ones over Skype? How does the cross shape those moments? This came to me with such urgency this week as I read a story. Um, the story was a, of, of, a, of a family in Seattle. They had gone to um, see a father. Yeah, here's the picture. And as they go to see the father, he's come down with the virus. Of course, they are unable to access the hospital. They call a priest. The priest comes with the family. They rush to the hospital. They're in the car park. They stand six feet away from one another. They have masks over their faces and gloves on their hands. The priest opens the word and he starts to read psalms of comfort to them. The wife of this gentleman is allowed access into the hospital, but not into his room. And then she stands, and she has a walkie-talkie speaking to the priest who's in the car park. And he gives her instructions so that she can say words of comfort to her husband who is dying in the other room. And if you look at this picture, you will see that there is a nurse, there is a clinician on the other side of this secure room, and the wife puts her hand on the mirror or on the glass and she puts her hand and then touches the feet of the dying husband so that there is a connection between the wife and the husband and then they take a q-tip and they dip it in olive oil so that he can be anointed and all the while his nine children are in the car park cannot get to him his wife cannot be in the room with him. And this nurse is connecting this grieving, suffering woman with someone who is dying. And when I read this story, I thought to myself, what answer, preacher, do you have for your congregants? What's the answer for a picture like that? And to try and to give an exhaustive answer, perhaps any answer, would likely 
feel trite for those of you who are experiencing suffering like this, who are mirroring the experience of the week going to Easter, and you cannot think about resurrection and the tomb right now because your life is difficult. Your career is on life support because you cannot work. Your business is in ICU. Your hopes and dreams are evaporating before you. Everything that you thought you knew is being tossed aside. Why? Can I give you an answer? The only answer I can even humbly submit to you this afternoon is that the cross reveals a God who does not cause others to suffer and die, but who suffers and dies with us. Look at this picture with me again. Where is Jesus in this room? Is Jesus on the bed suffering and dying? Is Jesus the intermediary between the sufferer and the grieve, the one grieving? Is Jesus grieving because someone is suffering? Yes. He's all these things. And this afternoon, if no words can give you hope because it seems too bleak, because the curtain has been drawn over the sun and your life is in darkness and you feel like you are the person on this bed, Jesus is in the room with you. He is giving you his presence even if you cannot hear his voice. If you feel like you're on the outside because you have parents that you are worried about, you have things that you are concerned about, and you know it's out of your control, you cannot fix it. Jesus is in the room with the thing that you think is on lifeline. He is with your career, with your marriage, with your business, with your health, with your dreams. Jesus is in the room when you are outside. Jesus is the mediator connecting you, letting you know that he understands, that he cares, that he has been through this situation and that he does not want to cause suffering for you, but he has suffered so he can be present and he can comfort you. And so this afternoon, as we enter the week of Easter, as we move tremulously towards Sunday and resurrection, I pray that you will know that Jesus Christ, in your pain and in your suffering, is with you. He does not give it to you, he is with you in it. That Jesus will not leave you or forsake you. That he will not abandon you. That he is present through your darkest moments. I want to let you know that Jesus Christ experienced for us and with us the uncertainty of life. He experienced 
the fear of the unknown on the cross, he experienced social and physical isolation. When hanging between heaven and earth, he cried out with a raspy voice, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He knows. He's present. And I end this afternoon not on a note of triumph because we are thinking about Friday, but a note of cautious hope that this too shall pass. That we have read this story and we know where the story ends. The Lord bless you this week. The Lord give you the strength and the courage that you need to make it one more day, to make it one more week. Amen.